Old Testament scripture for today is Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen through 20. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your community, from your fellow Israelites. He's the one you must listen to. That's exactly what you requested from the Lord God at Horeb. On the day of the assembly, when you said, I can't listen to the Lord my God's voice anymore, or look at this great fire any longer, I don't want to die. The Lord said to me, What they've said is right. I'll raise up a prophet for them for among their fellow Israelites, one just like you. I'll put my words in his mouth, and he will tell everything I command him. I myself will hold accountable anyone who doesn't listen to my words, which that prophet will speak in my name Whoever, any prophet or who arrogantly speaks the word in my name that I haven't commanded him to speak, or who speaks in my name of other gods, that prophet must die. Amen. We also want to hear this morning... Uh, the gospel text. And so if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the gospel of Mark, the first chapter. The gospel reading is verses 21 through 28. And if you're present with us this morning and are able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. Jesus and his followers went into Capernaum. Immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and started teaching. The people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority, not like the legal experts. Suddenly, there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One from God. Silence, Jesus said, speaking harshly to the demon. Come out of him. The unclean spirit shook him and screamed. Then it came out. Everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Right away, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When I was in uh, my early 20s and kind of launching into this ministry thing, I really wanted to be prophetic. Um... There were a couple of prophetic voices um, in my growing up years that I loved to listen to, and I would get their tapes, and I just kind of wore them. Remember cassette tapes? I would wear them out in my car. If either of them were within 500 miles of me, I would, I would drive and go uh, hear these prophetic words. I kind of wanted to be like that. So my, my first sermon in seminary in my homiletics or preaching class <laughs> was out of Ezekiel and was entitled... Sodom, Gomorrah, and America. 
Uh, I have to say, my homiletics professor, who was an um, African-American who had spent most of his ministry in inner city Detroit working alongside folks like Martin Luther King Jr. for civil rights, he loved that sermon. Um, the rest of my pres mostly Presbyterian class members thought it was a little over the top. But um, my grandfather heard me preach really early on, and it was one of those, uh, you know, 20-year-old prophet sermons, um, both barrels at the same time. Uh, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said to me, son, he always called me that because he couldn't remember my name, but uh, son, <laughs> so that was, that was great. I, I have some advice for you. His advice was always kind of earthy. Um, so, you know, son, you can, you can barbecue a sheep once in its life. You can shear sheep twice a year, but you have to feed sheep every day. Now, I laughed because I think he was telling me that because he, <laughs> he had just attended a barbecue. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's good advice. But as I get older, I, I feel myself becoming less and less prophetic, honestly. Um, Part of that is because I like being liked. Um, I don't like when people get angry and leave, and I, I just like being liked. I'm a, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I like being liked. Um, and I'm less certain as I get older also, and, and hopefully this is wisdom mixed with kind of the humility of age. But the older I get, I'm, I'm also less certain than I was in my 20s that I am actually speaking a word from God and not just yelling at people um, about things that are actually my issues and, and my thoughts, um, reflecting my own distorted brokenness and division. This morning, I, I want to take a look at these two texts, and I want to invite you, if you would, to put something in the Mark text and go with me back to Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, um, verses 15 through 20. And this morning, I, I'm going to... I'm going to play around with Deuteronomy. And so if you have your Bible, I really want you to go there. And if you, if you don't, I, I'm going to make you a promise every week I will use it. Um, and I would love not to just become a pastor who digests stuff and like a mother bird feeds it to you. I would love to help you kind of learn to read this well. Um, and so if you have a Bible, if you're with us online or here, I, I really would like you to look at it with me this morning. Because uh, this was one of those weeks where this is a hard message today. But about Friday, my head exploded with good, in a good way um, when it dawned on me what Deuteronomy is trying to do. And so I want to walk you through that today. But the question that's going to frame our exploration of Deuteronomy in particular today is this question. Why in the world do we need a prophet in the first place? Why do we, God's people, need the prophetic? Why do we need prophets in our lives? So this section of Deuteronomy is a farewell discourse from Moses. Um, the people are preparing to enter into the promised land. Moses is not going to go with them. Um, Moses is about to die. And the people, as they go, are worried. Um, Moses has been such a powerful leader, leading them out of Egypt, but also leading them through these 40 years where God has been working on them and changing them, as I love to say. Not just getting Israel out of Egypt, but now 40 years getting Egypt out of them. And Moses has been that prophetic voice, that connection between God and them. But now Moses is saying, I'm not going with you. <laughs> and so they're a little panicked about what happens when we get into the land and you're not there, Moses. Who, who will be that voice from God for us to lead and to guide us? 
But not only are the people a little panicked about Moses leaving, Moses is a little panicked about the fact that they're going in there and they're entering into the land and there are going to be people in the land and tribes in the land. And those tribes have lives that are very different than the life that God wants Israel to live. So for 40 years, God has been forming a people who will be a light, as we celebrate during the season, a light to the nations. And the life that they live, shaped by Torah, will draw other people to that life. But it's a very unique, not like the other kind of nation's life. But now as they enter the land and there are all these nations, Moses' primary fear is idolatry. Because it's not that the people in the land aren't religious, they very much are. But they worship idols, and those idols shape their lives in ways that are very, very different than the way God has wanted their life to be shaped. You with me so far? So let me say just a few words about idolatry before we move on. So idolatry, the problem with idolatry, is really kind of two key consequences. And and let me say that God is forming Israel to be his image in the world, to be his reflection, and so... As I've said to you before, um, that command in the Ten Commandments about not making graven images is not just because the eternal God who is beyond all cannot be represented in things made by human hands. That's certainly true. But another aspect is we can't make images of our God when he is busy making his image already in us. And so this image is going to be the life that these people live and embody together, but they're going again to move into a land where people worship idols made of created things. They have forsaken, as the the serpent, if you will, in the garden tempted Adam and Eve. They have been tempted to worship created things rather than the creator. And there's a source, a kind of key um, lie to all idolatry that the serpent whispers to them. It is that you will not die and you can be like God. You can have control. That is the primary lure of idolatry. But here's the thing. When it comes to idolatry, idolatry promises us something. And here's the hard part. It usually works for a while. But eventually, our life in idolatry gives us less and less while requiring more and more. So let me give you an example from my my friend Andy Crouch. So Andy will say, imagine that you are a young person or just, now. this was true in my 20s, it's still true in my 50s. Imagine that you have to go to a party and you're not sure you know everyone there and you feel really awkward. Most of us feel that way. By the way, even when I go to places where I know everybody, I still feel awkward. But imagine that you're going into that setting and you feel really awkward or imagine that your life has gone through things and there's a kind of ache or hurt to your life that really needs to be taken care of and dealt with, but it still is just kind of there. What if I could offer you something that could take that sense of insecurity that you feel and kind of soften that so that you feel less anxious in that setting? And not only that, But if you take it, if you, in this case, drink it, not only will you feel less insecure, but you'll actually be funnier than you really are. You'll be a better dancer than you are. And what if I could tell you, if you would drink that, the pain that you feel would be numbed at some level. 
And so Andy would say, this created thing, alcohol, that may have a place, can easily become a God that promises us either a sense of being bigger than ourselves or numbing a pain that we feel. But here's the problem. It works for a while. But what we find is that the more we participate in that, the more it becomes an idol in our life, the less it works. And so we have to increase its use until finally we get to this place where it's doing little for us and demanding everything. Are you with me? And I would add a second piece. So idolatry is that which captures our life and ends up doing little for us, demanding everything, but then secondly, dividing us from others. So in this case, it's easy then to have a kind of in crowd and out crowd and to feel like, oh, I'm part of the out crowd. I don't know how to get into that in crowd without that ticket to admission. But as we'll see in these idolatries, they not only lure those who are worshiping it into a life of oppression, but they actually then divide the world in ways that further brings brokenness. So keep those two things in mind. So now, again, if you have Deuteronomy 18 open, flip back just a little ways. I'm going to walk you through Deuteronomy, beginning at Deuteronomy 6. I would love to have a whole long time to spend on Deuteronomy 6 this morning, but it's essentially Deuteronomy 6, especially verse 4, is this call for Israel to stay faithful in their relationship with God. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Keep these words I'm commanding you today. Write them on your head and on your hand, on your doorpost and on your gate. So Deuteronomy 6 is basically saying this. As you go into the land, this unique relationship with God is not going to be easy to maintain. You're going to have to practice it. You're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to live in lives of faithfulness. Mark it. Talk about it. When you rise up, when you lay down, constantly remember that's the uniqueness that you are. But now go to chapter 7. Because what chapter 7, 8, and 9 do is they outline for us the the nature of the gods that Israel will encounter as they enter into the land. So you may notice if you have a Bible with headlines, like the common English Bible, the two headlines in chapter 7 are these, dealing with foreign worship, but then the next line, headline is against power and lack of trust. So if you're with me, chapter 7, let me summarize it for you, it's this, the idols that Israel will encounter in the wilderness or encounter in the promised land are these the gods of war, violence, nation, and military might. They're going to encounter a people whose gods are all gods of war, violence, nation, and military might. And they're going to be tempted to make those gods their own. And so what happens, look with me at verse 7. Moses writes this, it was not because you were greater than all the other people that the Lord loved you and chose you. In fact, you were the smallest of the peoples. No, it's because the Lord loved you and because he kept the solemn pledge, he swore to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with a strong hand and saved you from the house of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, Egypt's king. Now look at verse 17. If you happen to think to yourself, these nations are greater than we are. How can we possibly possess their land? Don't be afraid of them, for remember instead what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all Egypt. 
So he's saying to them, here's the temptation. You're going to move into this land, and you're going to see how powerful and mighty they appear to the eye. And you're going to think, oh, we have all sorts of insecurities in the land. Here's how we will find our security. We will build up our war, our might, our strength. Like, this is the way that we will make ourselves secure in the land. But here's the problem. It is an idol. And like all idols, what you find is this. At first, it works. So you feel secure because you have all these chariots and horses. You have all these armies. You have all this might. But what happens? Well, first of all, it divides the world between people who have that and don't have that, which causes you to fear the people who don't have that. And so in order to feel secure from them, you have to add more and more and more, expending more and more and more until you get to a place where you have all of the might in the world and you still feel incredibly insecure and threatened. But it has cost you so much. And you have given into that, Moses says, and you have followed after those gods. So don't do that. Hero Israel, the Lord our God. Remember, he didn't choose you because you were powerful. In fact, he chose you for the exact opposite reason, because you weren't powerful. Because when you say, in Yahweh, we trust, you don't actually mean we trust in all of this trappings. You actually trust in Yahweh. Now chapter 8. Chapter 8, I'll summarize this way. You're going to encounter the gods of wealth, fertility, prosperity, and sensuality. So here's chapter 8, verse 2. Remember the long road on which the Lord your God led you during these 40 years in the desert so he could humble you, testing you to find out what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you by making you hungry and then feeding you the manna that neither you nor your ancestors had ever experienced. So he could teach you that people don't live on bread alone. No, they live based on whatever the Lord says, verse 11. But watch yourself. Don't forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commands or his case laws or his regulations that I'm commanding you right now. When, listen to this, when you eat, get full, build nice houses and settle down. And when your herds and your flocks are growing large, your silver and gold are multiplying and everything you have is thriving, don't become arrogant. Forgetting the Lord your God, the one who rescued you from Egypt from the house of slavery. And now verse 17, I love this one. Don't think to yourself, my own strength and abilities have produced all this prosperity for me. Remember the Lord your God. He's the one who gives you the strength to be prosperous in order to establish the covenant he made with your ancestors, and that's how things stand right now. So if you're with me, the challenge is they'll go into the land, they'll see all these people with might and seeming security who have given themselves to these idols of violence, war, etc. But they'll also encounter people who seem so prosperous. In fact, most of the ancient gods, like the Baals, are gods of fertility. And it's hard for us to understand because we don't want that many kids. But it's not just kids they want. It's they want their, their crops to produce. They want all of this wealth and abundance. And so they worship those gods. But here's the problem. 
once you go down that road and that becomes your God. Have you noticed that even in our own life, we have all these things that promise to give us more time and more prosperity only to get us on a squirrel wheel that we can never quite get off of because we need more and more and more and it, re- it demands more and more and more until finally we have everything we ever wanted but it still doesn't feel like enough and we've cost ourselves everything. Now just one little sidelight here. Oftentimes in these texts there will be gods mentioned who are really detestable and they are gods, a god named Molech, who's always the detestable. And they're detestable because people sacrifice their children to that god. Now you have to ask the question, why would you sacrifice your children to the gods? Well, you would do that if you believed that life was actually found in the prosperity that those gods give you And if it costs your children to get that prosperity, you're willing to make that sacrifice. And I know I said I don't like being prophetic, but let me take it back for just a minute. Part of the gods that lure us into this life of the squirrel wheel that we can never get off, that promises to give us more and more, it works for a while, but it eventually demands everything. We may not take our children to a valley and sacrifice them there, but our culture is obsessed by gods that will make us more than willing to, ex- to sacrifice our children for the sake of success. So now chapters 9 and 10. So the gods of war and might, the gods of wealth and sensuality that kind of lead into all of that. Now chapters 9 and 10 Moses flips the script. It's not just those gods out there, but there's actually even a way of dealing with our God that may have idolatrous forms, and that is this. Chapter 9 is all about the gods of self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. So here is, if you have your Bible, chapter 9, verse 5. You aren't entering and taking possession of their land because you are righteous or because your heart is especially virtuous. Rather, it's because these nations are wicked. That's why the Lord your God is removing them before you. And because he wishes to establish the promise he made to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he will go on to to remind them, you aren't that great. No offense. But let's remember, I was up on the mountain getting tablets and you built a golden calf. And at that moment, God thought, I'm going to squish them and start over. But Moses laid himself on the ground and pleaded with God's mercy. And God said, okay, you're right. I'm a God full of steadfast love and mercy. And so all of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 is this. He's saying, don't get trapped in the idolatry of self-righteousness. Are you listening, Nazarenes? For one of the things that we have been lured into believing is that somehow if we can earn our righteousness, if we can be holy enough in our own strength, and by the way, it works for a while. 
We can earn favor with God and life will work and we can have these promises and assurances of God's goodness not only in this life but in the life to come. But the problem is that life turns out to actually be a form of slavery in which we find ourselves burdened and more burdened and more burdened and it costs us more and more and, re- and gives us less and less until we find that we are still isolated and feeling unworthy and now we've divided ourselves not only from our family and often from our friends but from the whole world. And so Moses prophetically outlines the key idolatries that will tempt God's people as they move into the promised land. And he goes on then to encourage them again to practice regularly their unique connection to God and and their call to be God's image. And he warns them if you move away from that, the same fallenness, the same brokenness, the same destruction that will, will happen to those nations you encounter, that will happen to you. But now that Moses has told them that, here's the question. Are you still with me? So why do we need a prophet still? Like if we have this, we can go with it. Why do we need a living voice, a prophetic figure speaking to us constantly? A couple more movements. Go to chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 14. God says, now listen, when you enter into the land, there's going to be some roles that you, you're going to need some leaders. Earlier, he'll talk about judges. You'll have judges for a while. But maybe, chapter 17 says, it may be you want a king. But when you want a king, and I would love for you to notice this, read the end of chapter 17 this week. When you have a king, here's the king's temptations. The king cannot go back to Egypt, which I don't think is just about geography, but cannot imagine themselves like Pharaoh, cannot go back to Egypt, and cannot acquire chariots and horses. If you're with me, that's temptation number one from chapter seven. The king can't go back and become that person. And chapter eight, cannot acquire for themselves all sorts of gold and silver and wealth. And... Temptation from chapter 9 cannot exalt himself as somehow above all the people. We've talked about this in the past, but just a little bonus teaching today. Later in the story, King Solomon, there's five things kings can't do here. Solomon will go five for five. As though it's his weekly to-do list. And so you have this king who will lead you, but here's the problem with kings. They're always going to be tempted towards those directions. Now, in chapter 18, it begins this way. You'll also have priests. And I would love for you to read chapter 18 this week because the first thing about priests is the people should take really good care of the priests. Really good care. But it goes on to say, after you've taken really good care of the priests, The temptation for the priest is this. The priest is going to have to talk to the people regularly from God. There is a Sunday every week. And the temptation is going to be that the people want to hear things that are relevant to them. The people want to hear things that help them to kind of navigate their life. The people are going to be, if you will, kind of itchy ears wanting to hear good things. And so the temptation for the priest is going to be to go to voices that are not God's voice. 
Now, in the text, it's about don't go to soothsayers and fortune tellers and all that kind of weird stuff, which unfortunately, sometimes we look at this text and say, that's just what it's about. Don't go to those, which is good. Don't go to those. But in limiting that to that kind of message, we miss the idea that what happens is the priest, frustrated for a word, goes to sources that are not God in order to speak that word. So if you're still with me, here's, here's what Moses is afraid will happen. The king and the priest will get in cahoots with each other. And the king will lead us into these idolatries and the priest will back it up. And take these broken voices and speak as though that's God's word. So when I think about this, I think about my favorite beast in the book of Revelation. In chapter 3, there's a beast that looks like the lamb but speaks like the dragon. And Moses' fear is that's what the priests will be. They look like priests, but they actually speak like the idols. And so now we're to our text for today. Chapter 18, verse 15. So Moses says, you need a prophet. And I'm going to die. But here's God's promise. God will not leave his people from generation to generation without prophetic voices calling them back to the heart of God. And you will have prophets in generation after generation who will call the king, the priest, and the people back to right relationship with God, which raises then another really big question. How do we know then when prophets are speaking for God or not? So let me, let me say, if idolatry brings two problems, captivity to things that don't actually bring life, and division among people, if those are the two big problems idolatry has, then here's Here's how you know you're hearing a prophetic voice. If it's inviting you to the freedom that only God can give by his grace and to heal the broken divides that our idolatries have created. Now, this is my last time, I promise. So now go back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Actually, 10, I'm sorry. Go to chapter 10, verse 12. So here's Moses having outlined the three forms of idolatry. Now he speaks his prophetic word. Now in light of all that, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What does God want from you? Only this, Moses says, to revere the Lord your God by walking in his ways, by loving him, by serving the Lord your God with all your heart and being, and by keeping the Lord's commandments and his regulations that I am commanding you right now, it's for your own good. And so the first thing you know, you know you've heard a prophet's voice when they are calling you to abandon the idolatries and to serve God only. And to give those created things it's their proper place. But then also verse 16. So circumcise your hearts, Moses says, and stop being so stubborn. Go ahead and underline that if you want to. Because the Lord your God is the God of all gods and Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites, doesn't divide people, and doesn't take bribes, 
He enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. That means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in Egypt. So revere the Lord your God, serve him, cling to him, swear by his name alone. So you know that you're hearing the word of a prophet and not somebody who in God's name speaks for the idols when they are calling you actually to fidelity to God and to overcome the broken divides that we have created by our idolatry in the world. All right, well, there's another text we should talk about too today. So go with me to Mark 1. So God warns the people of their idolatries, but he promises never to leave them alone. There will always be a prophetic voice that guides them from generation to generation to generation. Now, the reason Mark 1 is put together today with the text from Deuteronomy is because all of the gospel writers understand Jesus to be the fulfillment in many ways of that promise. That a prophet like Moses would ultimately come, and each of the gospel writers sees that promise ultimately in its fullness brought to bear in the life of Jesus. And so the the gospel of Mark in particular views the problems that Jesus encounters in his ministry in a slightly different way. For Moses, the issue is idolatry. The people are going to enter into the land and there's just going to be all sorts of idols that are going to lure them away from fidelity to Yahweh. The problem for Mark is, in some ways, that idolatry has taken on a more subtle but more destructive presence. So the problem for the first century folk is not so much, there is some idolatry in Rome, but Mark imagines the problem is that people have given themselves over to those forces And those forces have taken on a spiritual nature that now oppresses and in some sense possesses them. And so those idols, if you will, to use my illustration, they've given themselves over to that imagination and has given them less and less but required more and more. It is oppressing and possessing them. And so Mark sees this as encountering all of these sort of demonic forces that oppress and possess people. Again, just a little sidelight, each of the Synoptic Gospels opens with Jesus' ministry in a synagogue. In Matthew, Jesus goes to the synagogue and proclaims the kingdom of God is here, which is Mark's big thing. The kingdom of God is here and he begins to heal people. In Luke, Jesus goes to the synagogue and pronounces the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, and he almost gets killed. In Mark, the text before us, he goes into the synagogue and a demoniac starts screaming at him. It's an odd text and a brief text. But I think as we look at the text, we're not to see this demoniac in the synagogue as like every once in a while you have somebody strange walk into the synagogue or into church, right? And so Mike Poe and the other ushers back there, right? It's not as though the ushers were kind of lax on their job that day and they let a demoniac sneak through. 
And it created all sorts of turmoil that day. I think the way Mark wants us to read it is this. There's been a demoniac in the synagogue for months and maybe years and maybe generations who could come week after week and because they had been shaped by imagination of the king and that had been reaffirmed by the voice of scribes in this text, they were more than comfortable to remain in the synagogue and pursue the life that had captured them and was oppressing them, possessing them, and destroying them. Until Jesus came as one who speaks with the authority of the prophet. And let me say, I... I I think that's the way the gospel writers want us to understand not just this person, but so much. I was thinking the other day, in the majority of Jesus' disciples were either zealots whose imaginations had been captured by the gods of war and might and were looking for a Messiah who would kill the Romans. And so followed Jesus out of an interest for, for God to finally act in those ways. Or they were tax collectors who, yeah, left their booth, but may have left because they still have an imagination that Messiah is basically an economic Messiah who at some point we will ask, now when you come into your kingdom, you're going to need a vice president, right, and a secretary of state, right? Like you're going to need somebody at your right and left. Or followers of Torah, little mini Pharisees who follow Jesus because they see in him somebody who understands and teaches the law differently. And so it struck me that that those around Jesus had been shaped and formed in Mark's imagination by these oppressive forces. And what Jesus is going to do is deliver and deliver and deliver and deliver, set people free and bring down boundaries. But it strikes me that this spirit had been very comfortable residing in the synagogue. But the authoritative word of the prophet creates a crisis. But a crisis that cannot, a crisis that can be overcome by God's grace and by the word of Jesus and a prophetic word that brings freedom to this man who had given himself to that which would only destroy him. I need to land this plane, but I, um, so I, I struggled with this text and I have loved where it's gone. Now, that doesn't mean that at four o'clock this afternoon, I won't have a complete crash. And I'll feel like, oh man, I, there was so much I was trying to get to them and and I'm pretty sure I lost them and all of that flipping around in Deuteronomy somewhere. And like most Sundays, I'll, I'll, I'll crash, write a resignation later, letter and think about if I have any other marketable skills. But I'll be over it by Tuesday. Um, but as I was wrestling with this text this week and some other reading I've been doing, Again, I think part of the reason I, I want to be less and less prophetic in some ways, sometimes the text forces you. So if you're mad today, it's totally on Moses. Um, 
and you can email him, but it'll, he's slow re responding. Um, this has been a hard year for all of us in certain kinds of ways. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, the board was meeting. And I, I think this is um, because of all the challenges of this year. I think, I think I've been a senior pastor 19 or 20 years now. I, I think this is the first year in leading a congregation that we're not going to meet what our expectations were in terms of, fund, of raising money for this year. And so the first year we're in planning for next year, we're going to have to take a step back rather than a step forward. And, and I, by the way, think that's super wise, and it was my suggestion, and I, and I, have, I can look around and be really logical and tell you all the reasons why that's the case. But I've also realized, like, how much of my identity is shaped in that. And how much my own kind of sense of value is captured in the cause of success. Right? And my own kind of valuing is trapped in that. And here's what I find. I find what I, what I struggle with is I keep saying to myself, if, I had just, if I'd just been more creative, if we'd worked just a little bit harder, if I'd put in just a little more time, right? Like if I'd, and, and, and my tendency is then to want to kind of do that. But honestly, I feel the Spirit of God saying to me, come out. <laughs> um, come out. Like, don't, don't trap yourself into a mentality and imagination that's going to demand more and more of you and give less and less. And so this morning, I, I have some fears as I encounter this text and these texts. I fear that God's people will be tempted to forsake their uniqueness. And if I'm honest, I fear that we largely already have. And I fear that God's people will often be drawn towards leaders who offer security through power, life through wealth and, and accumulation, and who will foster a spirit of self-righteousness. And I fear that those temptations will only bring further bondage and division, not only to the church, but to the world. And I fear that the church will too often not discern those idolatries, and rather than resist them, will become supporters and advocates of them. And the world, by the way, then will identify us with them. However, I believe, I believe at the deepest part of my being that God will not give up on his people. And that God will keep sending prophetic voices, hopefully not me, to draw our hearts and lives back to faithfulness and fidelity to our calling. And I know that that word will not be easy to hear. It will cause disruption, potentially anger, but more hopefully repentance, and the good pain that comes with newness. And I am a prisoner of hope that God is so good that he will even give us the ability to have the ears to hear. God, we come today
confessing with your people, we need, we need prophets. We need the prophetic voice that you promised to give from generation to generation. For we're not all that different from those folk that Moses tried to lead through the wilderness. We live in a land full of gods and spirits. And we, um, we are drawn to them, shaped by them, captured by them. And unfortunately, even sometimes in leadership and both in the world and in the church, that imagination captures us in ways that we use your words um, and we look like the lamb, but we speak like the dragon. And so in your name, we call people into bondage. And in your name, we further divide your fragmented world. And so we're open to your word today. Give us ears to hear. Give those you call courage to speak and the humbleness to know that the words they speak apply to them as well as to those that they are speaking to. And may we confess our need for your grace to set us free, and for your love to come and heal. We thank you that you have not left us without an ultimate prophet, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who keeps speaking into our lives. And the more we look at Jesus and ourselves, the more we see the difference. But you do not leave us in that difference. As we confess it, you draw us by your grace into the life you have for us. And so draw us close to the heart of Christ today. Set us free from our bondage. And make us instruments of your light today, we pray. For we pray this in the prophetic name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me?